Welcome back to another episode of our Six Questions podcast. I'm Trent England for Save Our States. Very glad to be joined by someone we've wanted to have on the program for a while. He is Ryan Haney. He's an attorney in Oklahoma City. He is the Criminal Justice Reform Fellow at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs, which is where Save Our States happens to uh, to have an office. And, uh, and I'm also a, a fellow there at OCPA. So uh, glad to be a colleague of Ryan's and to talk with him today about some of the things that he's been working on, not just in Oklahoma, but all around the country with regards to criminal justice reform and big tech. And of course, we'll talk a little bit about the Electoral College as well. Ryan, welcome to Six Questions. Oh, thanks for having me, Trent. And uh, I am, uh, you know, someone as someone who followed OCPA's work and, and the work that you were doing before I was hired on, it's, a, it's an honor to be uh, your colleague as well. Uh, well, well, thank you. And I should mention to people two other things. One is you are coming to us from uh, from Utah. Uh, so we've got Beautiful another Park City. Yeah, from Park City. I mean, well, I wasn't going to give you away on that, although I know you're I know you're working. I know you're at a conference, but uh, yeah, beautiful Park City. Uh, so thanks for being flexible with us that way. And you're the host of a podcast all, uh, you know, separately from from this thinking on Lincoln. Uh, we had your co-host, Curtis Shelton, on a few episodes back. But Ryan, uh, real quick before we get into our six questions, tell people what uh, Thinking on Lincoln is about. Yeah, well, we are, we are a podcast focused on primarily local Oklahoma uh, governmental issues. So, the, you know, the name Thinking on Lincoln, it, you know, I think people sometimes think it has something to do with, with Abraham Lincoln. It's not. It's uh, our both the OCPA office and and the uh, state capitol are both on Lincoln Boulevard. And so the idea is we're coming to you from Lincoln Boulevard, talking to you what's about what's going on uh, 10 blocks to the north at the Oklahoma State Capitol for the most part. We, I mean, we dive into a bunch of different issues, but um, for the most part, most of the time, we are at least trying to focus on Oklahoma issues um, so, you know, even when we have on, you know, like an AEI scholar on housing, we really try to get them to focus on, okay, but what does your research on what's going on nationally, how does that affect what, what our people here in, in the great state of Oklahoma are seeing um, on the ground here, so... Very good. Yeah, people. Uh, I mean, it's it's worth it's worth anybody listening to, but I, I think particularly for folks in Oklahoma, or or just sort of more generally in uh, you know quote unquote flyover country, to get that perspective on you know like you said, what is public policy doing to people who live in in places like Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri? Uh, well, let's let's dive into the six questions here. Talking with Ryan Haney from OCPA. The first question. Ryan, you are the Criminal Justice Reform Fellow at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs. Why should conservatives, libertarians, people on the right care about criminal justice reform? Well, I, I think there are a number of reasons, and we can just start with the one that almost becomes a default and almost like a, um, a token reason, which is sort of the fiscal issue. But I don't want to I don't want to focus on that. Um, certainly, there is a sense in which there's there's a feeling on the right that we are spending too much money on incarceration, particularly in states in Oklahoma, where, you know, we, we tend to be in the cellar as far as uh, incarcerators throughout the country, which, you know, given the United States' position amongst the world makes us one of the most incarcerated, like most carceral states in, in the world. 
So um, that is certainly a one part of it. But I think even more fundamental, at least for me, is this idea of limiting government. Um, I think conservatives can have uh, blind spots when it comes to uh, law enforcement, uh, particularly when we talk about prosecutors. I mean, certainly with police as well. But I think it's important to re- for conservatives to remember that that these people are government actors, right? And so they are necessary, indispensable government actors. I mean, I'm a believer in you know I love the Declaration, and I th- you know I believe in the, our rights of life, liberty, and property, or the pursuit of happiness, however you want to say it. And police and prosecutors, judges, and all these government actors, you know, without them doing their job, there is no life, liberty, or property, right? I mean, they they protect that. But at the same time, I think it's also important to, to balance that with um, making sure that we are sort of limiting the scope of, of what they can do, making sure that we protect the due process rights of, of people who are caught up in the, in the criminal justice system. I mean, we have to remember that these people are in the crosshairs of the state and all of the resources that the state uh, can bring to bear against them. So, you know, when when I started law school in 2013, I, I frankly thought I would probably go and be a prosecutor. And then uh, it, somewhere during my second or third year, um, I, I had a, a, a mindset shift where you know this idea of limited government and and protecting constitutional rights um, kind of trumped that law and order side. Um, I, 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 again, I still think law and order is important, um, but uh, I started to see the way the government sometimes operated. I mean, we highlight you know issues with the DOJ and the way they argue cases and 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 some of the lack of accountability that's there, and that was. That spoke to me as a conservative. I, I also, I love the constitution. I think it's important for people to remember that of the Bill of Rights, four of the 10 original amendments, you know, that make up the Bill of Rights deal ex- exclusive, well, almost exclusively with rights of the criminally accused. Yeah. Um, and you could probably make arguments that there are others. Um, you know, especially if you consider at the time of the founding, seditious libel was a crime. I mean, arguably the First Amendment is like it deals with the rights of the criminally accused. Um, so, you know, that was something that was really important to me. And I found, you know, my first job out, out of law school was doing criminal defense work. And I found that to be very um, um it, 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 it gave me some personal satisfaction that I don't think I could have, I would have received working as sort of like a, an arm of the state. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that, that, um, you know, for a lot of conservatives, it's become, uh, it's become popular to say, and I, I think, I think certainly not incorrect to say that the FBI has been politicized, mm-hmm. but it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, I was, uh, I was writing on on these topics, you know, almost 20 years ago now, and that was part of the concern back then. And yet, you know, it it, it tends it tends. And I I don't think this is unique to conservatives. I think this is just a sort of a people outside of the system tend to look at it all in terms of sort of good people, bad people, people we like, people we don't like, and so if a politician you like is being, you know, the FBI is going after that politician, well, then the FBI must be politicized. 
and people miss the fact that they're just using the same the same tools, the same attitude, posture, the same power that they've had for decades. And uh, nothing really has changed just because the target has changed. Nothing fundamental. So, right. uh, yeah, I, I really value the work that, that you do, Ryan, and, and, you know, just other folks who, who work on these topics that I, as I say, I used to work on a long time ago and, uh, and don't, don't really do that much on it anymore. But I think, you know, it is uh, the, the American founders were, were the original American criminal justice reformers. And so anybody working on these issues is really standing on their shoulders. Yeah, uh, I agree. The, the second question is uh, kind of drilling down on this it, with Oklahoma in particular, you mentioned, you know, states like Oklahoma being some of the leading incarcerators in, in the country. How is criminal justice reform going in in Oklahoma? Sure. Uh, well, let me first start off by by framing that a little bit, because I think sometimes when people hear, oh, well, we're you know, we're one of the top incarcerators in the country, you know, it. it it raises the question, well, where should we be, right? Because, you know, we've got a governor that says he wants to make us a top 10 state. Um, I've got coalition partners uh, on the left who, who talk about getting to sort of the average, right? So we're trying to be, you know, instead of 48th or 50th, you know, how do we get to 25, 26? Now, I, my personal opinion is that a state's incarceration rate should probably track its violent crime rate. So, you know, we, we, we keep track of violent crime rates and nonviolent crime rates. And it's not to say that, that you should never go to a prison for a, for a nonviolent crime. Um, but if, if those two uh, data points, you know, are here and here, then your incarceration rate, in my mind, should be somewhere in between those but closer to your violent crime rate. So I tell lawmakers all the time, I'm not trying to get us to top 10 right now, right? Like I, I wanna get us in line with where we are uh, with respect to our violent crime rate um, because there is a huge disconnect. I mean, um, and the numbers shift and, and that makes, you know, having moving targets makes it difficult, um, but we tend to hover around the low 20s in violent crime, we tend to be be worse on nonviolent crime. So, you know, I'm not trying to get us top ten. I'm really not even trying to get us to average. I just want to get us closer to to that. And so, um, you know, we've been trying to accomplish that in a number of different ways since I've been at OCPA. The first of which was a a state ballot initiative that would have cut down on the state's ability to use what we call sentence enhancements for people who have committed. Uh, a prior offense, um, you know, there, without getting too in the weeds of that, you know, we, we had all the, the exceptions that you would want to have in something like that. So if somebody had committed a violent crime in the past, then they could still have their sentence uh, enhanced because of that prior offense. But what we wanted to stop happening is using, you know, former nonviolent offenses that frankly are either have nothing to do with the current offense that someone is charged with from taking that range from, and, and I'll just give you a great the example that I always remember is second degree burglary, which in Oklahoma means you broke into a house while no one was there. Um, or it, I think it could even be like a, you know, a garage or a, like a shed or something. Um, it's zero to seven years on a first offense. But if you have a prior felony conviction, it gets enhanced 
And now it's got a mandatory minimum of two years and the maximum is now life. And so the question is, well, well does anybody get life? I mean, occasionally, yes, it's not, it's rare, but even still, one of the things we want to do is try to make sure that uh, two people who have maybe identical uh, criminal backgrounds and they commit identical crimes, one person gets leniency in one county and another person gets the book thrown at them in another county, right? And and that's what you know our governor sees all the time in applications for parole, applications for pardons. Um, and so, you know, commutations. And so that's something that we've tried to fix on the back end. And that's great. But looking for ways that we can fix things on the front end. And that um, that that proposition failed, um, I think, in part because it was an amendment to the state constitution. I actually think in large part because it was an amendment to the yeah. state constitution. And um, there is a hesitancy in Oklahoma to to meddle to meddle with the constitution. Um, and so I think that was probably a miscalculation by the um, uh, the crafters of, of that initiative. But it's led into a, a number of other legislative uh, battles trying to, you know, classify our felony system. Right, right now, we don't have, you know, in some states, you might have a class A felony, a class B felony, and they have sort of uniform ranges of punishment. And we don't have that in Oklahoma every Every offense is in its own part of the code and it has its own range. And sometimes they make sense and sometimes they don't make sense. So trying to kind of bring that together in, in a coherent way where like crimes are treated like other like crimes, um, you know, that's something that we've been trying to work on now for, for really since I've been at OCPA, which I started in June of 2020. Um, but we have we have had some legislative victories um, this past year. A, a bill that I was very proud of. I helped draft it. Um, it was a, a clean slate expungement bill. So thinking sort of tangential, tangential, tang tangentially about the criminal justice system, how do we make sure that people are able to move on once they paid their debt to society and get jobs? And um, you know, we have this great, in my mind, a great statutory screen. Uh, statutory scheme rather for expungements, but they're expensive. So we're actually willing as a state to expunge quite a few records, um, but it's going to cost you, you know, as much as, I mean, or maybe on average about $2,500 per offense to go through and get all those expunged so that, so that your record looks clean for uh, educational purposes for housing purposes or, or and that's i mean you're talking about a process that involves people completely paying their debt to society and you know and, and staying clean for uh you know extended period of time and and all of this and then you know they they jump through every one of those hoops they're not you know they haven't committed more crimes they fully right. pay their debt to society and then they get to a point where the law says well, now at this point, because you've done all these things and because now we, we really believe in your ability to fully reintegrate with society, you know, we're going to legally allow you to expunge your record, but you have to pay a whole bunch of fees and, and court costs to, to do that. And just, just removing, not changing anything about the process other than making it so that, you know, it, it's not a situation where rich people can get their, their crimes expunged, but poor yes. people can't. That's I mean, a exactly lot of that, right. Ryan, it, it strikes me a lot of what you're talking about really is just sort of bringing our system in line with the fundamental idea of rule of law 
and that people are being treated the same, whether it's in punishments or whether it's in the expungement process, that we don't have a system where people in one county get treated much worse than people in another county or rich people get treated much better than poor people. I mean, I mean, is this all just sort of really based on the idea of the rule of law? I think so. And, you know, a, a, another another issue that has gotten a bad rap because some states have done it really poorly is bail reform. Right. I mean, bail reform works the same way. I mean, if bail is available to two to two people, you know, let's say that they commit the same crime and bail is available, but one person is sitting in prison, has not been convicted of a crime yet, but like still presumed innocent, but somebody else who, you know, has money, their parents have money, they're able to go and, and raise it from friends or family or whatever can get out. You know, that person's able to better help their attorney collect evidence in defense of their, uh, you know, in defense of their case um, to continue working so that they can, um, you know, afford an attorney uh, and, and still, you know, be sort of like a net benefit to society. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think avoid, that's exactly right. I think avoid all the, is, a, is a big part of all of this. Yeah, and they can avoid all the mental health risks that go with spending extended time in county jails, which oftentimes right. are not... Uh, uh, much, much worse than, than places, than the prisons. I, I just think this is fascinating. I think a lot of people don't know this, that, you know, uh, a lot of people in jail haven't been convicted of the crime. They're, they're awaiting, awaiting their trial or, or, or plea bargaining or whatever um, versus prisons where everybody who's in a prison has been convicted of a crime. And, and, you know, mostly of a somewhat, you know, what we consider a somewhat serious crime if they're, sure. if they're going to prison and yet prisons are much nicer places than jails, um, you know, by and large. Uh, so I, I, I mean, you, would you agree with that, Ryan? I think, yeah, I think so. And part of it is because, you know, jails are, are almost used as, um, you know, now that we don't have uh, like mental health facilities where we can take somebody and, and maybe involuntarily commit them to get them some help, whether that means, um, help with a substance abuse issue or mental health issues. Um, but those people are, are largely being housed in jails. And so, you know, I serve on a citizen's advisory board for our local uh, jail trust. And, you know, one of the problems that, that the local jail has that I don't know that you would find at many prisons is like they're just littered with bed bugs. In some of these, in some of these floors, they don't turn the lights off at night. People sleep with the lights on because the bed bugs are so much worse uh, when the lights go out. But of course, the reason the bed bug problem is a problem is because a lot of what they're doing is just housing homeless people there who um, you know probably need more services rather than just being you know detained somewhere. Yeah. Well, let's let's shift to a topic that is uh, that might seem completely different, but I think ties in with criminal justice reform and trying to um, implement conservative policy solutions in ways that that reduce some of the disparities between rich and poor uh, or between people who live in one zip code and people who live in another zip code. And that's school choice. Uh, I know, Ryan, you're very involved with the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs in advancing school choice policies. Um, why why does that matter in a state like Oklahoma, especially where, you know, a lot of people, you know, people might be listening to this in California or in New York or, or you know, some of these blue states and say, well, you know, sure, our states have have all these problems in education, wokeness and, and uh, 
you know, schools that aren't safe, but surely in red Oklahoma, the schools are still teaching mom and apple pie and patriotism and are still relatively safe. So why, why would a place like Oklahoma need school choice? Well, I mean, it, 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 it's very similar. Like, like you said, it's very similar to the criminal justice issue. Oklahoma ranks very poorly um, in with, with respect to academic outcomes. And so, you know, I had a conversation with a legislator once who, you know, he, he represents a rural district and uh, he goes, well, you know, we're not we're not hanging the rainbow flag and we're not doing, you know, the CRT and and teaching some of these, you know, wacky concepts. Um, and I didn't say this to him because it's kind of like telling his kid is ugly, but it's like, well, sure, representative, but but they can't read and they can't do math. And that's also also very problematic. And um I was just having, I had lunch and I was sitting next to a guy from Apple and we were talking about what, what it is that, that drives Apple to, you know, they're not hiring in California anymore. They have reached the limit of what they can afford in California as far as employees. So now they're looking at Texas and Florida and most recently North Carolina. And, you know, one of the reasons I was like, why North Carolina? Well, you've got uh, UNC, Chapel Hill, Wake Forest, and Duke, all with, you know, that that triangle, I think they call it like Tobacco Research Road. Or like, yeah. And he's like, that research triangle is huge, you know? And so, um, you know, if, if Oklahoma wants to be competitive in the, uh, you know, in bringing in employers uh, who are going to hire, what you know, bring in well-paying jobs, like, you know, in engineering and in the STEM fields, you know, it's, you've got to have an education system that can support that. And so obviously higher ed is a big part of that, but your higher ed, higher ed is oftentimes only going to be as good as the K-12 system, right? So if the K-12 system in Oklahoma is not, which, which right now it's not, is not producing students who, who can be successful in those fields, you know, a lot of the kids, even the ones that get into college are having to take remedial math classes uh, at, at these colleges. And that is just not going to cut it in, in, in a competitive workforce in the, in the future. And so um, it's, in my mind, it's, it's very important for the future of our state that we, that we turn, you know, that we, we write the course with respect to education. Um, and that means all kinds of things, right? It means the worldview issues that we talk about with respect to um, you know, CRT or, or gender affirming care and whether or not we let, you know, boys into girls' bathrooms and that sort of thing. Like that certainly plays a role, uh, of course. Um, but also we just got to, we got to make sure that we're teaching them to read and to, to do math. Um, so that, yeah, it's, you know, and, I mean, it is, it's sort of, you know, on the sleeve unpatriotic to teach 16, you know, out of the 1619 project curriculum or CRT, which is fundamentally racist, right? That's unpatriotic. Uh, but to, to, to accept that young Americans in Oklahoma or anywhere else, you know, in Chicago are not going to learn to effectively read and write and do math is also profoundly unpatriotic. It's anti-American not to teach young Americans to be successful. And I think that's what people in states like Oklahoma, and I, I moved here from another part of the country where you know there's all kinds of crazy wokeness, which is terrible, but the educational standards are higher. Yeah. Uh, the, 
the the public schools, the standards that they hold themselves to are are higher. It has nothing to do with money. It has to do with culture and uh, and self respect. Uh, and uh, no, I, I think I think if if we could ever recharacterize things in that way, where people understood how unpatriotic, how anti American it is, how we're serving Chinese. Uh, Communist Party interests when we fail to teach students in Oklahoma City to read and write, uh, maybe we could, you know, maybe we could shake things up. And uh, it certainly seems like like school choice is one of the one of the the quicker paths to um, at least allowing a lot more students to have a lot more success than we're getting right now. Agreed. And, and I will also just say, I mean, I, I think it's a both and approach. You know, it is the it's the academic side, and there certainly is, I think, a anti intellectual. Um, there is sort of a thread running through. I think the state in certain parts of the state, it's like, you know, people people with degrees are or, or with advanced degrees are almost um, met with even more skepticism, and certainly, you know, part of that is like. You know, it, whether you want to call it like the coastal elite ruling class or whatever has brought that upon itself. Right. I mean, we saw that with covid. Um, uh, but in addition to that, um, you know. By by giving parents choices, educational choices, we can stop playing political whack-a-mole with, you know, two years ago with CRT. This last year, it was, you know, transgender bathroom issues. And regardless of what you think about that. Right. I mean. Parents should be able to make that choice for themselves, whether they want their kid to go to a school that is gender affirming or or is like more, you know, what I would call based in like in reality. Right. And it looks like, yeah. you know, the next fight is going to be over pornographic books. And so who knows what the fight is going to be after that? I mean, it just keeps getting wackier and wackier. And rather than continuing to play political whack-a-mole and just like, you know, always being one step behind the local superintendent or school board, we can just get out ahead of it and say, we're just going to give everybody an option. And if you want to, if you want your kid to go to the local indoctrination center, then that's perfectly fine with us. Um, but we're going to give other kids an out. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which blows some people's minds because some people, you know, I, I think some people, even on the right, you sort of discover, oh no, you're a totalitarian, just like people on the left, you're just out of power because you'll hear people say, well, but there are some schools on the right that, or there are some schools that, that you would have under under school choice would be bad, and so we've got to create a, an educational utopia, which means we need a monopoly system that we control versus a monopoly system that somebody else controls. You say, okay, like so, you're you're just like just like the NEA, you're just like Joe Biden, like you want a top down system. You just think that you're better than they are. Like I. I, I I actually find that part of this debate very, uh, very helpful, very clarifying. Okay, yeah. Ryan, let's let's jump over to another topic, and uh, that is something I know you've been thinking about lately. The whole question of big tech, which is driving a lot of this wokeness, um, which is, uh, I mean, is something that that seems very new under the sun, uh, just in terms of having these big private corporations that have a you know tremendous amount of power over. Uh, the the virtual public square, um, Ryan. What um, what are you thinking about in terms of you know what we need to do, what we need not to do when it comes to uh, protecting our country from uh, some of some of the downsides of this technology or these big companies? 
Sure. So uh, one of the things that I'm I'm kind of excited about is um, so well let me let me back up just a little bit. So you know at OCPA our four core principles are limited government, free enterprise, personal responsibility, and individual initiative. And that that free enterprise uh, means a lot to me because I, in to, I believe that free people require free markets. Um, and, um, and so I'm very hesitant to go into the private sphere and tell people what they can or cannot do, especially when we, when we get into issues like content moderation, right. And, or like section 230 or whatever you want, like a lot of that stuff is, is, is actually a first amendment issue. Right. Um, and so I think that's important to remember, but one of the things I am kind of excited about as far as giving people or, you know, people who are frustrated with big tech, which is kind of a misnomer. Um, I like, I think one of the things we can all agree on is that whenever the government is getting in bed with big tech and basically telling uh, the, some of these tech companies to do their bidding, that is problematic. And it does look like uh, Congress is going to shift uh, in, in the midterms. And so there's some, some, an interesting piece of ALEC model legislation that, uh, where the states can pass these resolutions encouraging Congress to investigate some of these areas where like the Biden administration may have, you know, reached out to Twitter and said, hey, we want you to, uh, you know, sort of like use the power of government to say like, we need you to crack down on what we think is misinformation. Like that is super problematic. And, and I think everybody agrees on that. I certainly do. Um, where I where I'm a little wary uh, of some of the other things that I see coming out of um, conservative and sort of populist spheres is this idea that we need to quote crack down on big tech. I mean, the reality is, if you look at all these companies, it's not like big banking where all the banks are doing essentially the same thing, or big oil and gas where these companies are all basically just you know exploring for, for natural, uh, you know, natural uh, resources and then refining it, selling it. I mean, what Facebook and Twitter do are totally different than what Amazon does, which is totally different than uh, what Microsoft does, right? Which is totally different than what Uber does. And so it's like, at, at some level, big tech is a bit of a misnomer because it's like, yes, they're technology companies, but they're not all doing the same thing. And I think when it comes down to it, I think what people are really frustrated at is is Facebook, Twitter, and Google, and a lot of that just stems from um, Twitter and Facebook booting Trump off their platforms, which I don't think they should have done. But you know, Trump's now got his own platform. I think it's called Truth Social. I'm just going to tell you, like, if you say something about bad about Trump or his family on Truth Social, they boot you off. Um, and so, you know, if, if I just think conservatives need to be aware that any any growth of government power used to rein in or break up or wh whatever you want to call it to big tech can be used against them as well. And that's why fundamentally I'm always, I'm always, I'm always skeptical about sort of these power grabs um, by the right, because my fear is always, well, what happens when you lose the next election? And then those power grabs are sort of used back against you um, with equal or greater force. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the broad strokes of what I'm looking at and what I've been thinking about. I, I'd love to see Congress do something on data privacy so that we have a very, a, a very uniform single data privacy um, uh, 
uh, solution for for everyone ac across state boundaries. I'm sort of I don't like to see states doing it on a state by state patchwork basis, but data privacy is a is a big deal that um, hopefully Congress can get its act together and pass something on. Well, fingers fingers crossed uh, for for <laughs> Congress to get its act together, I guess. But uh, no, I I think that you know it's that's an area where actually there's a lot of uh, seems like there's 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 interesting kind of left right agreement as you get out to the like you know, the extremes, not in a pejorative sense, but just, you know, people who are further left, people who are further right, I think sometimes agree on on solutions. And then people who are sort of closer to the like center left, center right, agree on solutions. An interesting area where I think things actually could happen in Congress to 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 craft something on data privacy that um, that that would give people a, a better sense of what those rules are and and the companies and and everybody, which yeah, I think I think at this point, even a lot of the companies would they would rather see that done because they do get worried about the sort of you know patchwork of of different sets of rules for companies that are inherently you know national and, and global. Uh, that that's really interesting, Ryan. Th thanks for for talking us through uh, uh, through that. And I will say for people who disagree, I think we're going to have a guest on who kind of takes a little bit of a of a more aggressive stance on big tech uh, pretty soon. So we'll we'll cover that angle as as well. But uh, but Ryan, really glad to get your get your views. I have to ask you a question about the Electoral College. You, you've already mentioned your your own fidelity to the Constitution and to those principles. Ryan, why is the Electoral College important uh, to you when it comes to our, our constitutional system? Well, I, you know, I, I, I would probably tend to agree with a lot of, of what uh, of the things that you all are, are out there saying. You know, I, I watched. Uh, I watched the documentary film that you all put together. Um, you know, I think for me, the big part is is just making sure that you sort of get, um, you know, you get a, uh, I think, a better cross section of what the, where the country is via the Electoral College, rather than, I mean, I, and and part of this, I know this will, to your audience, it won't sound problematic, but I mean, there, I think there's, I think there's a, a reasonable argument to to be made that. Uh, well, I'll just say I don't like the idea of like these big cities controlling uh, a national election. Now, I mean, in my mind, uh, I think a lot. I think a lot of the issues around the electoral college would be uh, would become less of an issue if we just didn't have this like imperial presidency, uh, where like the president is like essentially you know can kind of do whatever they want. Congress doesn't check them. The courts very rarely check them. Although that does seem to be changing a little bit with the, the, the makeup of this current Supreme Court. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea that, you know, we want an accurate cross-section of, of where the country is as a whole, which I think the Electoral College provides. Um, I'm also sympathetic to the idea that the Electoral College requires um, a more consensus view. Of, like, it, it, it tends to, although recent, recent, Recently, maybe is 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 not a great case study, but it does seem to get you do seem to get fewer fringe candidates. You need to get candidates who can um, who can court various interests throughout the country, right? I mean, you know, looking at rural places as well as well as urban areas, um, and so for like for all those reasons, um, I, I think it was it was a wise a, a wise system and continues to serve us well.
obviously here at Save Our States, we agree with, with all of that. Um, Ryan, our last question on our six questions program is always the same. Who is your favorite founding father and why? Sure. Well, um, I, um, I wanted to go with like a more generic one. Um, you know, I, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking James Madison because simply just because of the, the Federalist Papers and all of that. But I wanted to go a little more uh, out on a limb, uh, a little more like a, a, a deep track. And I'm going to say John Witherspoon because he was a Scottish Presbyterian uh, as a as a reformed uh, Protestant myself. I, I feel the need to uh, to go with somebody who, uh, you know, was a, uh, a Scottish reformed um minister as well as as well as founding father so that's that's my answer very good i think that that's uh reverend witherspoon's first uh first call out on our yes so i was gonna ask if i was the first one to to, uh to mention him absolutely well ryan haney the uh, criminal justice reform fellow at the oklahoma council of public affairs also the co-host of the thinking on lincoln podcast you can find that weekly wherever you find quality podcast programming Ryan Haney, thanks for being a part of our Six Questions podcast. You bet. Thank you for having me. Thanks to all of you for watching or listening to the program. We'll be back again next week. I think we've got a a great uh, guest lined up for that program and uh, and several more lined up in the weeks ahead, including looking at the election, both before it happens and uh, whatever the outcomes are and how that affects the fight to defend the Electoral College. For Save Our States, I'm Trent England. Thanks for watching.